This is Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. I'm Masha Udenseva-Brenner, and today we're going to be talking about Mondegreen, Songs About Death and Love. It's a contemporary Ukrainian novel written by Volodymyr Rafayenko, an award-winning writer and philologist who had always written in his native language, Russian, until Russia invaded Ukraine's Donbass region in 2014. Here's my colleague, Marko Andrejcik, with more on the Rafayenko. Volodymyr is originally from Donetsk, eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass region. When the Russia-Ukrainian war began in the Donbass, he escaped to Kiev, leaving behind his hometown, and then he settled in the Kiev region and decided at this point to try to write his first novel in the Ukrainian language, learn the Ukrainian language and write a novel. And the novel, Monde Green, is the story of a refugee from Donetsk who moves to Kiev and is learning the Ukrainian language. Mondegreen was published in Ukraine in 2019. Marko, who runs our Ukrainian studies program and teaches and translates Ukrainian literature, translated the novel into English. That translation came out in 2022, right after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It was a very strange period of time for me because I couldn't wait to announce it to the world, to my friends, together with him to congratulate him on this because we had worked on this for so long and it was this period of just this horror and fear and worry and what transpired with Rafenko after that it was just horrific Before we get to what happened to Rafayenko during the war, we're going to hear a bit more about who he is and how this translation came to be. First, though, some quick context about Marco, whose professional name is actually Mark. Marco is what we call him around the office and what his friends in Ukraine call him. Marco grew up speaking Ukrainian in a tight-knit Ukrainian-American community in Philadelphia. His parents had both fled Ukraine as young children during World War II. Marko was not planning to study Ukrainian literature. He had an engineering degree. But when he first visited Ukraine in the early 1990s, he fell in love with the place. There's a certain buzz I've always felt since that time in 92 when I first came over. You can almost feel it through your shoes, or if you're barefoot even more so. While he was there that first time, Marco met a group of artists, writers, and musicians. And because this was just a year after the Soviet collapse, there was this feeling of excitement, intellectual energy, inspiration, and freedom all around him. After Marco returned to the States, he decided to come back to Ukraine every year. And eventually he left the field of engineering to get a doctorate in Ukrainian literature. Now he runs our Ukrainian studies program, and for nearly 15 years, he's been bringing Ukrainian intellectuals to Colombia. Marko's wife is Ukrainian. When they met, she was a DJ and musician in Kyiv. And I should mention that Marko is a musician too. In 1995, he started a rock band called Yizhak, 
the Ukrainian word for hedgehog. The band still performs, both in Ukrainian and English, often using texts from Ukrainian poetry for lyrics. It includes musicians from Philly and Lviv. That's the beginning of a song called Ptecha, which means escape. Now, let's talk about Mondegreen and Rafaenko. What does Mondegreen mean, and, and why is that the title? Of the novel. Amanda Green is something that is heard improperly, but they think that's uh, the, the, the true way, where it actually is a completely different word or phrase. So I think that is one of the reasons that Rafaenko uses this, because he plays so much with the idea of naming and renaming and misnaming, and this idea of subjectivity in the novel, that I think it's, it's just a really nice way to, to think about it. How did you become aware of this novel and what was your original reaction to it? Why did you decide to translate it? Friends of mine who were writers lived in a region northwest of Kiev and it was actually part of, of Ukraine where a lot of my friends live. These are now unfortunately known towns as Bucha and Hostomel. Bucha and Hostomel are two Kiev suburbs that were temporarily occupied by Russia earlier in the war and were badly decimated. Civilians were unable to escape, and horrible atrocities occurred. Thankfully, Marco's friends in these areas were not physically harmed. Several years ago, when we were hanging out in Hostomil, one of my friends he says, well, in our apartment in Kiev, there is a refugee from Donetsk living. He's a writer, and he's writing this amazing novel. And we're going to let him stay there until he finishes his novel and gets on his feet. So I had heard about this novel way ahead of time. The novel was published a couple years later in 2019. Marco got a hold of a copy when he was in Ukraine that summer and read it while traveling around the country. I decided that this is indeed a fantastic novel and that I need to translate this so that my students can read it. What struck you the most about it? Why did you feel it needed to be translated? Well, I thought it was very interesting to have this perspective on Ukrainian identity from somebody from uh, the Donbass. Uh, I think the fact that it dealt with internally displaced person was very important. It touched on the Russian-Ukrainian war in the Donbass and just the whole idea of language and language in Ukraine and this perspective by Rafeenko on this topic. As you mentioned in your introduction, it was a really difficult novel to translate. Can you talk a little bit about the process of how you dealt with a lot of the challenges presented in the book? It, it was quite unique in, compared to other things I've translated. The author was writing his first uh, novel in a new language, and you could tell in, in, in his Ukrainian language that there was this kind of freshness, there was this fascination, this kind of taking a car out for the first ride. So it was important to try to pass that along in English. There are 100 footnotes. There are so many intertextual references to Russian culture, to Ukrainian culture, both pop culture and, and, and high culture, that are important to, to really appreciate the novel. It took Marco two years to translate the book. And the whole time, he never met Rafaenko in person. 
They communicated online, and their conversations always took place in Ukrainian, even the ones having to do with logistics. Oftentimes, Ukrainian language it has this mythical quality, it has this romantic notion, but for many people, it doesn't have this practical sense. But when we were working on this novel, when I needed to discuss practical things with him or things about publishing or about visas, we spoke not in English, not in Russian, but in Ukrainian. Ukrainian was the practical language of getting business done. And this is something that needs to happen with Ukrainian language, and it is happening, of course. But it was interesting to work in Ukrainian on that level, not just on the level of high art. You finally met him last summer. What was that interaction like? What was he like? Yeah, so uh, I told him I'm coming. I'd love to meet him. The book hadn't come out yet, but after sitting in, in somebody's head for two years translating this, this complex work, it was just really nice. He was so grateful, and I was grateful, and it was just very amazing to meet somebody who I don't know at all, uh, except basically through this novel. What most surprised you when you finally did meet him? I think it's always important when you speak to somebody to see their intonation, their mannerisms. When you're translating and you're translating dialogues and you try to imagine the author, how his face changes when he speaks, how, how he uses his hands, all these things. So when you finally meet somebody in person and you have a chance to observe that, it's always interesting. Because this is probably the first living authors that I translated something before I had met somebody. And can you describe him a little bit? What sort of presence does he have? Volodya is a very sensitive, a very thoughtful, a very delicate person. He's not very outgoing. He's kind of shy, keeps to himself. But just speaking with him, it would be almost like, again, translating the novel. We'd get into these pretty profound discussions, even in the short time that, that we hung out, less than two hours. You know, it was just a very gentle soul. Haba Habinski, the protagonist of Mondegreen, is also a gentle soul, a soul who's constantly searching for connection, whether with real characters or the mystical ones that float in and out of his life. There's a lot of mysticism in this story. There's a folk character called the Mare's Head that follows Haba around everywhere we go. And how I interpret it reading is that obviously there's a lot of post-traumatic stress that he experienced from the war in Donetsk, where he comes from, that has caused these psychological hiccups and issues. Can you discuss a little bit what these mystical aspects of the novel mean and also tell us who the mare's head is? I agree with you that these are obviously consequences of these traumas that the protagonist, Haba, had experienced. But with the mare's head, it's such a central character in the novel and it graces the cover, both the original Ukrainian edition and our English language edition. It is from a Ukrainian folktale. It's, it's a story of a, basically a skull of a mare, and it symbolizes respect for one's ancestors. And it's one of several of these tales that he was told as a child growing up in Donetsk that continue to haunt him, taunting of him, and it's, it's hijacking his social life, his learning of the Ukrainian language. But in, in other ways, it kind of leads him through the novel and it connects him to his Ukrainian past, which I think makes it even more interesting.
And there's a scene that's very powerful toward the beginning of the novel where Haba describes these two Ukrainian men in Donetsk who spoke Ukrainian to each other. But whenever he would try to speak Ukrainian with them, because it's a language he knew from his grandmother, even though he grew up speaking Russian, they would immediately switch to Russian. Can you talk about that dynamic and, and what are the dynamics of language in that region, as far as you know? Well, I've never been in the Donbass region, so I can't really speak for that. I do know or I noticed over the years, even traveling to Kiev in the early mid-90s, that there was a conscious switch to Russian by Ukrainian speakers. And whenever they got out of their own little circle, there was like this inferiority complex where if you went out to the public, so to say, you needed to switch to Russian to kind of have more prestige, more of a footing where Ukrainian was, if you were a Ukrainian speaker, that was reserved for like the closest circles. It's not something that was really shown. And this is even in caves. So I can imagine in Donetsk where I think there were even less Ukrainian speakers. That was probably kind of what he's explaining there. And in the book, he does delve in to his memories in Donetsk, which he also calls City Z. Can you explain why there are those two names? I cannot. Obviously now, Z is a symbol for many Ukrainians of something of pure evil. And there are several things in this novel, like in all great literary works that are somehow (laughs) prophetic. It's something he's used earlier in some of his works, but it is is, is quite uh, interesting how now it's become to be associated with the Russian military during this invasion. It's really quite creepy. It really is. It really is. Last winter, as Russian troops continued to build up along the Ukrainian border and anxieties mounted, Marko was getting ready to publish the English edition of Rafayenko's novel. He was working on bringing Rafayenko over to the United States for a brief book tour, including a talk here at the Institute. He was actually already set up for an interview for his visa at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev when the U.S. Embassy vacated just before the war. So then we were actually setting up a meeting for him in Warsaw so he could get his U.S. visa and come again before the war. And that was kind of on its way when the war just exploded. So that became obviously impossible. Can you tell us about what happened to him during this war? Yeah, so in those first weeks of the war, he was living in this Hutir, in this this area, not far from Buchab, and basically... At that point, the Russian army had been surrounding that area, and he was stuck living near the woods. And like he said recently in an interview, Russian soldiers were coming in and taking over people's homes and looting them and doing all these horrific things that we're finding out about now. And his area was spared, he thinks, because they didn't have electricity, they didn't have water, they were cut off from these things. So he finally got in touch with another writer, and asked if he could put some thing together to get them out of there because it was just extremely, extremely dangerous part of the world to be in. And eventually, through various attempts, 
and using a network of, of various characters. And my wife was involved even here on this end, trying to coordinate just one small part of this network. They sent in two guys willing to go in and get him. The rescue was meticulously coordinated with the Ukrainian army, which alerted the rescue party when there was a safe opening to get in and out of the area. There were gas shortages, and others along the way had to ensure that the rescue party had sufficient fuel. And they weren't able to get him at first because things got too dangerous. They had to turn back, although Volodya was waiting, packed and ready to go. And then the second time they went in, they were able to get him out. And when my wife was sent the photo of the two heroes that got him out, you couldn't believe it. It was these two hipsters. I think they were actors. <laughs> That's amazing. And you and your wife have millions of connections, very close, deep connections in Ukraine. How has it been for the two of you to be here while all of this is happening? It's been very difficult. We really want to go and help. We understand how that probably wouldn't be the smartest thing right now for us to go to Ukraine. We try to help as much as we can here. We've certainly been busy on this side, whether in my field, in Ukrainian studies, there's been just this all of a sudden this explosion of interest in Ukrainian literature. And me and my colleagues who have been working on this for years have been engaged very actively in trying to disseminate information about this as have the writers themselves in Ukraine, but also just on basic levels, fundraisers almost every weekend from making vareniki, which are pierogies in Ukrainian, to helping brew beer that's going to earn money for humanitarian aid, to, to performing concerts, to raise money. So, you know, we've been busy and that helps. Rafaenko and his wife are now safe. He's in a, a city in western Ukraine called Ternopil. That's where he's living now. And how long was he trapped? I don't know the exact dates, but he describes in a recent interview in some detail about how close he was to this weaponry and to the army itself. I have several other friends that were in towns like Irpin that were stuck for a while too, which we were very concerned about. But he was the last one. He was the last one, and he was so remote. That must have been so terrifying. Yeah, and to have experienced this twice within eight years, basically he's dealing with the same force that he, he, he noticed and he described in this novel, but obviously to a greater extent in what was happening then. Currently, Rafaenko is working on another book, inspired by his experiences during this war. Marco says that after the publication of Mondegreen in Ukrainian, Rafaenko had been planning to write his next book in Russian. The language his mother spoke with him. And he was even joking when I finally met him last summer. That it's hard to write in Russian after Mondegreen because it's as if he had cheated on her by writing Ukrainian. But I read in this recent interview now, with, after what he, he experienced, that he says he's not going to publish anything ever in Russian with his name. He just can't see it happening. So it'll be in Ukrainian. And if you had to recommend another Ukrainian novel translated into English, what would you recommend? There are so many. I don't really want to single out any. But a good way to start is with an anthology, The White Chalk of Days. The White Chalk of Days is an anthology of contemporary Ukrainian literature compiled and edited by Marko and published in 2017 as part of a Ukrainian studies series from the Kennan Institute and the Harriman Institute. 
check it out wherever you get your books. And is there anything I haven't asked you that you wanted to bring up about the book? No, I just invite everybody. It's a complex book, but I think it's rewarding, and you'll learn a lot about Ukraine and about universal topics such as language, memory. So I hope people enjoy it. And I second that. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Marco. Thank you. If you want to support Ukraine, please consider donating to razomforukraine.org. That's R-A-Z-O-M for Ukraine.org. It was founded in 2014 in the wake of Ukraine's Revolution of Dignity by Dora Komiak, who's on the Harriman Institute's National Advisory Council. Razom has been working directly with volunteers in Ukraine to provide emergency relief where it's needed most. Thank you for listening to Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. I'm Mashi Densava Brenner. This episode was written and produced by me with editorial assistance from Nathan Schiller. The music in this series was composed by Ivan Nebesny, who's still in Ukraine. If you missed the last episode, you should listen to learn more about Nebesny. The cover art for the podcast is by Victoria Tentler Krilov. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review.